be opening your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19. We're looking at verses 16 through 22. It's often the most familiar texts that lead to the most confusion and error in the Bible. Uh, It's the memorable story ripped from its greater context that ends up being twisted to uh, espouse ideas that are not intended by the author, uh, ideas that clearly weaken, undermine, or even directly contradict clear biblical doctrines, if not the whole thrust of Scripture. And our passage this morning is one such story, story of the rich young ruler in Matthew Matthew 19, 16 through 22. It says, And someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what's good? There's only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Then he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, All these things I've kept. What am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, If you wish to be complete or perfect, Go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Uh, We're going to look at five points this morning, uh, breaking this down into the the ruler and his question, uh, Jesus' answer, the ruler's response, Jesus' call and the ruler's refusal. So beginning with the ruler and his question. To understand the message of the rich young ruler, we first need to consider what we know about him and the significance of his question. So let's begin, begin by asking, who is he? Verse 16, it says, someone came to him and said, well, someone's pretty vague, but that's not all we know. We know, first of all, that he is rich. Verse 22, it tells us he was one who owned much property. Sneaking a peek into the section that we'll be handling next week, it explicitly says in verse 23, related to him, it's hard for a rich man, referring back to him, to enter the kingdom of heaven. And we even see an amplifying adjective in Luke 18.23, a parallel passage where it says, for he was extremely rich. So this is a guy, he's doing pretty good pretty well off. we got to be careful not to carry our modern pietistic worldview into this text. In an effort to brace against the very real dangers of the prosperity gospel, many people jump right into the ditch of Gnostic and pietistic error. The Gnostic pietist thinks that anything in the material world is somehow, at best, a necessary evil. Uh, they think that manual labor is less holy than church work. Guys, is that true? No. Of course it's not. 
They think that being single and devoted to ministry is better than being married and raising a family to the glory of God. We we covered that a couple of weeks ago. That's pietism. It's not true. There's not something lesser in the flesh and blood realities of uh, being a, a husband and a father or a wife and a mother with children. And they think that building wealth to be used for the kingdom is less holy than taking a vow of poverty for the kingdom. It's all related to this pietistic, Gnostic kind of understanding of the world. Many people today misquote 1 Timothy 6.10. They don't even know where it says this, but what do they say about it? They say, money is the root of all evil. Does the Bible say money is the root of all evil? No. It says the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. So such men read of a man who's rich, and they think, (coughs) yuck. Riches and money and wealth. This man's clearly a greedy man from the oppressor class, right? Uh, or uh, down with income inequality. Or, But no first century Jew could have fathomed such Marxist ideas. Karl Marx hadn't been born yet, and they didn't think that way. It's not what they thought. The entire Jewish culture thought the exact opposite, actually. And with good reason. The Bible presents riches as one of the ways that God actually confirms His covenant with His people. So well, that doesn't sound right. Can't help it. Uh, Deuteronomy 8, 18-20 You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He, the Lord your God, who is giving you the power to make wealth. Well, man, you don't hear that very often, do you? Who gives the power to make wealth? The Lord your God. And it goes on and it says, Why does He give that wealth? So that He might confirm His covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. So he gives wealth to confirm his covenant? Well, only if you believe. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 18 to 20. Right? And it goes on to say, It'll come about if you ever forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you this day that you'll surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so you'll perish so uh, because you wouldn't listen to the voice of of the Lord your God. The Bible consistently presents covenantal blessing and curses upon nations and communities and families and individuals based on their response to His law. We've got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, David, Solomon, Job. Were all any of those guys poor? No, they were all what? Very, very wealthy. And why does the Bible say that they were blessed with such wealth? Because their ways please the Lord. Does that make you cringe? Yep, because you've been conditioned for that to make you cringe, haven't you? We've been conditioned that that's not how we think about money because we should think money, oh no, yuck, that's bad. Consider uh, what we would call the Protestant work, work ethic. From where does it come and to what does it lead? Well, it comes from a life centered around diligent performance of duty. And what does it lead to? Proverbs 10.4 Poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes one rich. Proverbs 10.22 It is the blessing of the Lord that makes rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. This someone who came to Jesus was rich which would have been seen as an indication of diligence and productivity, not 
of greed and materialism. That's not what they would have thought about this man. The people that were around when this man rounds up to Jesus, they're not thinking a greedy materialistic man. They're thinking a diligent, productive man. And not only was he rich, but he's young. It tells us that in 19 verse 22. It refers to him as a young man. A word for young man there is a man at the peak of his strength and vitality. A man that's in the prime of his life. This entire chapter has centered around marriage and family issues. Remember the last text, it was about the value of children to the kingdom and the role of parents in seeing to it that they're blessed. In the last section, uh, parents brought their children to Jesus to be blessed by Him. And now a young man from good stock is pictured. And he's seeking out Jesus on his own. Well, did he get his wealth from inheritance, perhaps? You know, Proverbs 13, 22, what does it tell us? A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, and wealth of the sinners laid up for the righteous. So it's, it's certainly possible that he got his wealth, because he's a young man, he's not had much time to accumulate it himself, he got it as an inheritance. But we don't know that for sure. But it's to be assumed that this young man came from a good home, with good parents, who had given him a good start and instilled good habits into him. But lest we think of him as a spoiled brat with a silver spoon in his mouth, we also know what? He's rich, he's young, and he's what? He's a ruler. Uh, to be rich and young could explain through, be explained through a healthy inheritance alone. But Luke 18, 18 tells us that he was a ruler. And by ruler, it most certainly means a ruler in the local synagogue. So that was a big deal for a young man. Being a ruler in the synagogue was usually something attained after years of faithful living and faithful learning. But this man was so respected by his peers that he had attained this position as a young man. So we have here a man who is a religious leader, devout and honest and respectable, wealthy, prominent, and influential. He's a guy who has it all, we might say, isn't it? He's the kind of guy that you're like, man, I want my daughter to marry a dude like that guy. That's kind of what we've got here. He's a man who epitomized Psalm 1, 1 through 3. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night, and he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and whatever he does prospers. He's this guy. And not only is this man impressive, but so is his question. In verse 3, remember the Pharisees, the other rulers in the synagogues, they tried to test Jesus. But this guy's different. This rich young ruler is not trying to test Jesus He's trying to learn from Jesus. And we see a, a clear sense of earnestness in this man. We can see the earnestness in three ways when you take the synoptics together, all three of the Gospels that recount this story. First of all, we see an eagerness. The rich young ruler seemingly had it all, but having it all wasn't enough for him. He felt a sense of urgency so strongly that Mark 10, 17 says that he ran up to Jesus. He, he wasn't walking. He wanted to get to Jesus. How commendable is that? He, he's already blessed, but he's not satisfied. He wants to build on the blessed foundation that he's received from his parents and his community. And here's this miracle-working rabbi in his community. 
And he's eager to attain a greater faithfulness and blessing, so he runs to him. But not only do we see eagerness, we also see humility in him. Mark 10, 17 says that he ran and knelt before Jesus. Most rich people don't kneel before carpenters, do they? Most young men are not kneeling before men that are only slightly older than him. Because Jesus would have been in his early 30s. And most rulers in the synagogues were not kneeling before Jesus at all because they were, wanted, they were rivals. I want to be looked at as for his prestige and honor. Jesus was a threat to most of those other rulers and their prominence. Jesus' ministry had centered around contradicting their tradition at every turn. What they taught, he's correcting it over and over again. Most every synagogue leader wanted to discredit Jesus, but this rich young ruler was different. He wasn't embarrassed to kneel before Jesus as an inferior. He didn't care about losing the respect of the local, uh, as a local expert in the law and as a prominent member in his community. He kneeled as a sign of deference to Jesus. And what's he call him? What's he say when he runs up and kneels before him? He calls him teacher. What good thing shall I do that I might obtain eternal life? This impressive young man acknowledged Jesus as a respected rabbi. He himself is a ruler in the synagogue, but he's acknowledging Jesus as better than him, as more knowledgeable than him, as someone that he needs to learn from. We can't afford to lose our place in this chapter. We, miss, uh, we risk missing how significant this acknowledgement is. Jesus recently taught against the tradition of the elders concerning divorce. Remember that? Despite Jesus' unpopular, what we call right-wing extremist view, this rich young ruler is running to him, bowing before him, and calling him teacher. Forget about the popularity or acceptability of Jesus' teachings. He doesn't care about that. This rich young ruler is not afraid of being canceled, is he? He's not afraid of being put out of the synagogue, which a lot of people were during Jesus' ministry for aligning themselves with Jesus. He recognized Jesus' wisdom and miracles as authenticating signs that Jesus is a teacher come from God and a teacher of divine truth. There's no reason to believe necessarily that he considered Jesus to be the promised Messiah or the Son of God. He didn't use that language. But he obviously considered Jesus as above the typical rabbi. There's so much commendable in this young man. Furthermore, not only is this question earnest, it's also a really good question simply by asking this question of Jesus. The rich young ruler is showing himself to be beyond the hypocritical religiosity of the scribes and the Pharisees. He was quite clearly a cut above his peers, an upstanding, productive, successful man. Rather than trying to discredit Jesus to garner attention and prestige for himself like the rest of the Pharisees, he wanted to be more righteous and obtain greater blessing. He had at least a glimmer of the poorness of spirit that would characterize the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. He felt lacking. He knew that there was more. So he asked, What good thing shall I do that I might inherit eternal life? The term eternal life is used somewhere around 50 times in Scripture. And surprisingly, it always refers primarily to quality rather than quantity of life. Although eternal life obviously carries the idea of being an everlasting reality, it doesn't simply mean unending existence. I know a lot of people that are getting older and older and weaker and weaker, and that doesn't sound fun. You get more and more decrepit and weaker and weaker, and you get ready to die, right? It's, it's, 
It's more than just living forever. It's a fruitful, productive, and blessed existence that it's referring to. The divinely endowed ability to be alive to God and the things of God. It refers to the unending shalom of God being on someone. You've heard of that, right? The shalom of God. It entails peace, completeness, soundness, welfare, health, security, tranquility of life, a spirit, uh, prosperity, unaffectedness by outside sources, and safety. The wish of this blessedness of life is wrapped up in this traditional shalom greeting. It's a wish for God's highest and fullest good for you. And the unending nature is a necessary aspect of that. But unending existence alone is not the meaning. It's an unending and gloriously righteous existence and the subsequent blessing that accompanies such an existence. So he, he's blessed beyond everyone around him. He knows there's more for him and he wants to be better and have better from the Lord and to have it forever. And what's Jesus' answer in verse 17? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. Has anyone else read that text and thought, I'm a little perplexed by that, but I don't know what else to do except for just go on. I know me. I, I, you read that. And I'm uncomfortable by the fact that Jesus said this so I'm going to ignore it and keep reading. Uh, Mark's version is slightly different even. It says, he says in Mark 10, 18, Why do you call me good? There's no one who is good except for God. So as different as those two things sound, though, the, the idea is basically saying that it's not what it sounds like to our ears. Jesus is not saying, I'm not good. God is. He's not saying that. And he's not saying, how am I supposed to know what, God, what, what good is? Only God knows that. He's not saying either one of those things. So what is he communicating? Well, he's communicating the unchangeable nature of goodness. This young man was no novice when it came to the law of God. And Jesus points him back to the basics. There's a clear allusion here to the Shema. Are you familiar with the Shema? The, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Remember that? It comes right after the giving of the law of God. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. And you shall walk, you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. The point here is that the rich young ruler already knows what good is and what will lead to life. That's the point. He's like, why are you asking me what's good? Why are you calling me good as if what you've been taught in the law is insufficient for righteousness? The Lord is one. Love Him and keep His commandments. Your, your parents taught you the Shema. They taught you the commandments diligently, talking to, them, to you about them as you sat in your home, as you walked by the way, when you laid down and when you rose up. You're a ruler in the synagogue. You're asking me what good you must do in order to have life. You debate the law all the time in the synagogue. That's all you do there. Don't you know that the promises of the law are life? Remember, Deuteronomy 30, 19-20, I set before you today, what? Life and death. Blessing and curses. So choose life in order that you may live. You and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying His voice, and by holding fast to Him, for this is your life and the length of your days, so that you might live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, 
Isaac and Jacob to give to them. Relate. So if one wants to know about the good that leads to life, look to the Shema, which points the reader to the law. He's saying, why are you asking me about good? You've, you know good. It's all you've ever heard is the law. It's been, you've read it out of the Scriptures, and it says, these things you do and you shall live. And unsurprisingly, where does he go next? He goes to the law, which is a reflection of God's nature. What's he saying in the second part of verse 17? If you wish to enter life, keep the commandments. It's another thing that makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? Keep the commandments and you'll live. Oh, I thought the commandments were just a death sentence. Well, they are if you don't keep them. But if you kept them, well, would you ever die if you never sinned? Well, of course not. So he points them back to the law, which does promise life and does promise blessing. Jesus takes God's law seriously. The commandments reveal the character and nature of God, and thus they reveal His will for us. Jesus will recommend no good that's different from what's revealed in the commandments. Remember back to the Sermon on the Mount. Remember that in Matthew 5, 17-20? Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but what? To fulfill for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth shall pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. You want the kingdom and its blessings? Keep the commandments. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he'll be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Again and again, the Scriptures make the connection between the commandments and life. We saw it in Deuteronomy that we just read. But we see it again in Leviticus 18.5. You shall keep my statutes and my judgments, by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. Jesus is saying, you know what to do. Why are you asking me? I haven't taught anything that's not already written in the law. I'm not giving you new rules. I'm pointing you back to what God always required. And the promise of them is if you do these things, you will live. You want to know what to do to enter life by your works? Live according to the law of God. You're a learned and devout Jew, and you know what God's law requires. Go do it. We see Jesus answer the question in the exact same way in Luke 10, 25-28. Notice uh, a, man, a, a scribe comes up to Jesus and says, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Where do you think Jesus goes? He said to him, What's written in the law? I don't have anything new to say to you. You want to know what to do to enter into life? What does the, the, the Bible tell you? The Old Testament tells you. The law tells you. If you do these things, you'll live. And how's it read to you? And he answered with the Shema. The, he, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbors yourself. And Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly, this dude, and you'll live. He goes right back to the same place he steers this man to, in Luke. But the rich young ruler is unsatisfied with such a basic answer from such a celebrated rabbi. So in verse 18, he says, which ones? He tell, Jesus says, keep the commandments, and the man says, which ones? The question is similar to what's the great commandment, the, the, what is the great commandment of the law debate. In the synagogues, they were always ordering the commandments in order of perceived importance, which commandments would get the priority, and how these commandments fell under some rabbi's understanding of those which are most or least binding in order to lead to the most blessed life. 
The rich young ruler is undoubtedly looking for some sort of in-depth, nuanced discussion like he's used to in the synagogue. But Jesus simply quotes from the most familiar of all of the teachings in the law. He goes straight to the Ten Commandments. He tells him, what? You shall not commit murder. Sixth commandment. You shall not commit adultery. Seventh commandment. You shall not steal. Eighth commandment. You shall not bear false witness. Ninth commandment. Honor your father and mother. He goes back to the fifth commandment. You shall love the, your neighbor as yourself. You're like, well, that's not one of the commandments. What kind of is? Don't covet what's your neighbor's. You want him to have it just as much as you. So it's related to covetousness. So Jesus here quotes the entire second tablet of the law. Mentions everyone in the second tablet. From five all the way through ten. The first tablet is completely absent in Jesus' response. We're going to return to that later, but log that away. He doesn't handle that right here. But now let's consider the ruler's response. The young man said to him, All these things I've kept. What am I still lacking? In this response we see both an assertion and a follow-up question, don't we? Let's begin with his assertion. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept. Mark 10.20 adds, From my youth. Right? So... I've kept all these things since I was a boy. You're not telling me anything that I've not heard since I was a boy. That's exactly the point. There's nothing new to tell you. The law hasn't changed. The nature of God hasn't changed. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. He gave us His law. You want life by your works. Keep the commandments. And the commandments are exactly what Moses said. I'm not changing any of it. It sounds arrogant to us uh, that the man says, All these things I've kept from my youth, but he's not claiming sinless perfection here. The word kept means guarded or watched or observed or been mindful of. Like, I've known this forever. I've always tried to do those things. That, that's the, that, the life you're telling me I need to live is exactly what I have lived the entire time, and I have prospered in it, but I want something more. That's the whole point. Obeyed is in the range of meaning too, but not in a sinlessly perfect sort of way. Remember after Paul's conversion... He, he says basically the same thing about himself. Remember in, in Philippians 3, 4 through 7, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. And then he lists his credentials, culminating in this similar claim. As to the righteousness which is in the law, what does he say about himself? I was blameless. Paul says the same thing. I always tried to keep the law, but whatever things were gained to me, those I have counted loss for the sake of Christ. They knew they still had to offer sacrifices for their sins and their shortcomings. So they're not claiming sin, sinless perfection. Rich and ruler isn't Paul isn't. They, that's why they went made their pilgrimage that they're probably right in the middle of right now in Judea on the way to offer their sacrifices for the Passover, which is coming up. He's not claiming that. So it's not even an arrogant assertion. He's wanting to live the righteous life. The rich young ruler is asserting that obedience to those very commands are exactly what he has aspired for his entire life. And he's been faithful. And he's been blessed. But he knows something's missing. He wants more. More faithfulness. More blessing. And that's commendable. And he's looking to Jesus for the key to unlock even more blessing for him and his family. So he's disappointed in his answer thus far. Jesus, this respected, miracle-working rabbi, is simply referring him back to things that he already knows and things that he's known all the way from his youth. So his follow-up question makes sense, doesn't it? What am I still lacking? I know something's short. 
What is it? Up to this point, we should be amazed by this man's continued display of humility. He knows he's done good, but he's convinced that his good is not good enough. A life of basic morality can't be all there is for him. He deserves credit for the perception that there's more to serving God than merely conventional morality, even when the morality is directly based on the requirements of the Old Testament law. R.T. France says his initial question was looking for something more. He is searching. He's not prepared to be fobbed off with such an elementary ethic. He's more spiritually adventurous than that. I love Mark's commentary to his response. All the, the, the rich young ruler says, All these things I've kept from my youth, what am I still lacking? And Mark says, concerning Jesus' feelings in response to this follow-up question, looking at, looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. I can relate. I read this story and I study this story and I meditate on this story and my heart goes out to this young man. I, I like him. Hey, there's, a, there's an affection I feel reading about him and his earnestness. In this man, much like the man in Mark 12 who told Jesus that who Jesus told he was not far from the kingdom of God, we see a man who understands the need for righteousness, who understands the basic requirements of the law, who's zealous for greater righteousness, greater blessing, and eternal life. So with a loving disposition toward this rich young ruler, we see Jesus' call. In verse 21, Jesus said to him, If you wish to be complete, or if you wish to be perfect, Go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. What a heavy response this would have been from Jesus. You want to move from the blessing that you have to something greater? It isn't going to be found by slightly tweaking what you've already got. You're not just going to be able to Build on, okay, you've done good, and now let's add a few extra things to it. That's not what's going to lead to it. It isn't to be found in the religious heritage that's been handed down to you by your parents. It isn't to be found in the traditions that you propagate in the synagogue where you serve as ruler. And it certainly can't be attained by building on the foundation of assets that you and your family have accrued. And he, he gives two calls to the rich young ruler. First, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you'll have treasures in heaven. What kind of calling is this? What are we to make of this? Is this a universal aspect of discipleship? You want to be a Christian? Can I as a pastor say, you want to, you want eternal life? You have to, one, one criteria is go sell everything you own and give it to the poor. Otherwise, you can't have eternal life. Can I, can I say that to you all? Is that what this text is saying? Are all disciples of Jesus required to divest themselves of all their assets? If so, everybody in here is in much trouble, ain't we? If we really believe that Jesus requires selling all of our possessions and giving the proceeds to the poor for us to gain eternal life, we better put our money where our mouths aren't. Right? We better, if we believe that, we better do it. Or else we're prioritizing something wrongly, aren't we? If you say you believe that, and you think you have eternal life, but you still have possessions, then you need to take a logics class somewhere. Because you, you know, something ain't adding up in your brain. 
Well, don't get rid of all your stuff yet, because I, I would argue that Jesus can't mean all disciples have to sell all their possessions and give to the poor in order to have eternal life. Why? Well, because Paul doesn't instruct the rich to do that in 1 Timothy 6, 17-19. He had rich people in the church in Ephesus, and he says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited, or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So everything you have, God gave it to you to enjoy, but don't trust in it. There's the instruction. Not divest yourself of it, not get rid of all of it, but don't be conceited and don't fix your hope on the uncertainty of it. But do instruct the rich to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. All those things are a loose hold on money, but it doesn't mean that you get rid of everything. There's a huge gap in be generous and give everything you own away, isn't it? He says that by being generous and ready to share, you store up for yourselves a treasure of a good foundation for the future so that you might take hold of that which is life indeed. That's a necessary aspect of the Christian calling that you don't worship your assets and that you're generous and that you're overflowing in goodness. But that doesn't mean that you have to have about poverty, does it? But Paul doesn't call Christians to that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus can't be making that a rule for all believers. Does that follow? Tracking? And also, in the next section, Jesus promises material reward. Look, look down just a few verses. Peter recognizes the willingness of the twelve to do what the rich young ruler refuses to do. And then he asks, Behold, verse 27, We've left everything and followed you. What will there be for us? And look what's promised in verse 29. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my sake will receive many times as much and inherit eternal life. And Mark 10, 29-30, the parallel passage makes it clear that he'll receive a hundred times as much now in this present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions and in the end eternal life. So the promise is that you'll get blessing in the path of faithfulness as a Christian. So you don't have to have nothing. You can't be multiplied with houses and farms and have no assets. Does that make sense? We can't be saying that. Not to mention, does the Bible change? We act like the Old Testament and the New Testament are like you got the Old Testament and that's the bad God, and then you got the good God in the New Testament. No, it's one God all the way through all of it. And if one of the ways he confirms the covenant is through blessing of diligence, has he changed? Of course he hasn't. So why does Jesus make such a demand on this man? There's your question. To understand the mercy of this calling, you have to remember what Jesus knows is about to happen. And this is what I think many people miss in this text, and it's very important. What's going to happen within this generation? Well, the temple's about to be destroyed. Matthew 24, we're going to get to just in about four more chapters, right? Jesus came out from the temple and was going away, with his, and his disciples came up to the point of the temple buildings, uh, uh, came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he, and he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Also, the end of the entire age, of that entire age that they're living in, is quickly approaching. Matthew 24, verse 3. Tell us, when will we see these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Matthew 24, verse 34 tells us that it will be in this generation. And 
where does this man own this property? This rich young ruler. He owns all kinds of property. Where does he own it? Well, where is it? Where are we? Matthew 19.1, when Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. What's about to happen in Judea? Turn with me here to Luke 21.12-24. Luke 21.12-24. Greater commentary on the question of what's, when will these things happen, the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem. Verses 21 through 24 in Luke gives us greater commentary. It says, Before all these things, then they will lay their hands on you and will prosecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my namesakes. The synagogues, like the one that this rich young ruler is a ruler in, is going to turn on Christ followers. He better get out of the current situation he's in because the synagogues themselves are going to turn on Christ followers, aren't they? And verse 13 in chapter 21, it will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. But you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, but they will put some of you to death. And you will be hated by all because of my name. Even the parents who raised these Christ followers, these Jewish parents who raised these Christ followers who embraced Jesus as the Messiah, will turn on their own children, leading to their own children's death. And look at verse 18. Not a hair on your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies... Then recognize that her desolation is near. In verse 21, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Those who are where? Those who are in Judea. Where does this rich young ruler live? In Judea. Where does he own all of his property? In Judea. Within this generation, what's just about to happen? All of Judea and all of Jerusalem is going to be trodden underfoot with wars and destruction. You're going to lose all this anyway. You might as well divest yourself of it. Get rid of it. It's nothing. It's built on a faulty foundation that is judged and about to crumble. Divest yourself of that and follow me. That's what's going on. If you don't remember the whole context of the book, what happens? Pietistic Gnostic interpretations where you think assets are bad. It's exactly what happens. You miss the meaning of the text when you abandon the full context of the book and the Gospels. Those who are in the midst of the city, he goes on in 21, must leave. And those who are in the country must not enter the city because those are the days of vengeance so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days for there will be a great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all nations. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. All the blessings and wealth that this man owned were obtained within a cursed and judged system. The temple and the synagogue and all of Jerusalem and all of Judaism, the heritage handed down to him, through his fathers that he's lived in, there's been temporary blessings in that. It's been the way that you get blessing in that culture and society. It's the generally accepted way. He's walked in it. And people, they, there's privilege in that. 
of being like all those that are around you. And he's benefited from all of it. But that benefit, that time of benefits running out. It was all about to fall because of their twisting of God's law and the tradition of the elders and their rejection of Christ who called them back to the true intention of God's law. And that's why we have the second part of this calling. It isn't only sell all that you have and give it to the poor, but more importantly, we see the call to what? Come and follow me. You, you want blessing greater than what you've got? You've been blessed by living in this system, this synagogue system, and living in the law as they understand it, and everybody generally, they, they do business with each other all, and there's these general uh, relationships that lead to temporary blessing, but God's judgment is coming on all that. And you need to come out of all that and follow me. And there I think we've got the first four commandments. Why does he only hit the five through ten? Because in following Jesus, you have the other four. Have no other gods before him. Jesus is the one. You've got to follow Him above everything else. Reject idolatrous wealth. Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain by calling Jesus a teacher but rejecting His lessons. Rest in Christ as your Sabbath instead of resting in the promises of wealth. Proverbs 18, 10-11 The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run in and are safe. But a rich man's wealth is his strong city. And is like a high wall in his imagination. Jesus is inviting the rich young ruler into his new community. Remember, Peter declares Jesus as the Christ, the true interpreter of the law, the Son of the living God, and Jesus responds in Matthew 16, verses 18 through 19, I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. The synagogue was trying to usher in the kingdom of God through their law-keeping, but it was a messed-up system to be judged. But Jesus says, I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell will not overpower this new community. And I will give you, the church, the keys to the kingdom of heaven. You want the greater blessing of the kingdom? It's not to be found in synagogue Judaism. It's to be found in the church who has the keys of the kingdom. And whatever you bind on earth will be what was bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be what was loosed in heaven. Where the tradition of the elders claimed to honor God's law, they actually dishonored it by binding where they should have loosed and loosing where they should abound. The only way to be complete and perfect is to follow Jesus as the Christ, the new and the better Moses. Isn't that what the Sermon on the Mount does? Remember in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, except your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you won't even see the kingdom of heaven. And what's he do immediately? That's verse 20, 520. What's he say in verse 21? You've heard it said of them of old, you shall not commit a murder. But I say to you, whoever hates, has committed murder already in his heart. He replaces their messed up external ethic with a true heart ethic, a deeper understanding of the law. This young man wants a, a deeper walk with God that's more than what he's been taught. Jesus is saying, hey, it's not in going to a different law, but in the true intention of the law that will find it. You've got to follow me and I'll teach you. I'll bind where, you should, where it should be bound. I'll loose where it should be loosed. He does the same thing with adultery and with oaths and with divorce and with hating your brother with getting vengeance. And then he ends in Matthew 5, 48 with what? Be you therefore perfect, even as my Father in heaven is perfect. If you will be perfect, go and sell all that you have, all your possessions, and give it to the poor, and you'll have treasures in heaven. And come and follow me. 
Jesus is saying, come out of their system. I know you've been blessed by the associations. I know it's brought you prosperity, but it's passing away. And it's going to be judged within this generation. But Jesus' church will unlock the blessings of the kingdom of heaven. Go and sell your possessions and give to the poor. And you'll have treasures in heaven. And come and follow me. We see echoes of that language in Jesus' words to the disciples right after our text in Matthew 16 that I just pointed to you. This, uh, upon this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell won't overpower it and I'll give you the keys to the kingdom. Right after that, we see in Matthew 16, 24-28, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Come and follow, come and follow. It's come out of that old system into the church where we'll bind and loose rightly and the blessings you might die but you'll have treasure in heaven forever. So take up your cross and be willing to die. Why? Because there's reward in obeying Christ that cannot be found in the synagogue. Their eternal life that he was looking for is in the church where they would rightly bind and loose according to the law. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Well, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with the angels and then repay every man according to his deeds. Truly I say to you, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Some of the disciples would follow and be rewarded in the resurrection. They would, it would cost them their life, but not one hair on their head would perish because they would raise again and get all the rewards of heaven. But some would see the Son of Man coming into His kingdom and be blessed in this age with more than they gave up. The rich young ruler is not intrigued by the promises of the treasures in heaven, so we see the ruler's refusal as our last point in verse 22. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. This is a sad story because he believed Jesus. When the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving. That's tragic right there, isn't it? He, he didn't go away scoffing, says this man don't know what he's talking about. He thought, he does know what he's talking about. But he wouldn't listen. He went away grieving knowing that he wouldn't get that greater life, that eternal life, knowing that he was going to choose not to listen, even though he believed the words of Jesus. Oh, what a tragic thing. Don't be that guy. Don't be the person that believes, but not to the saving of your soul. That believes, but still holds on to this age, to the wicked systems of this world, unwilling to repent like you're called to do. This man's called to repentance, and he says, no, repentance will lead to life. It will lead to greater blessing for you. And he says, I believe your saying is true, but no, because it will be a short-term cost, and I'm not willing to pay it. How tragic. He believed Jesus, but he chose lesser blessing over greater blessing. He chose temporal blessing over eternal blessing. The imperatives to sell and give are followed by this come and follow. The essence of Jesus' command is not divestment of Divestment of assets, but discipleship in the teachings of Christ. Discipleship, though, not for just empty discipleship, but discipleship of promise. The giving up of possessions is not presented as a sacrifice desirable for its own sake, but rather as a means to something better. Treasure in heaven. 
So he believed, but not really. Remember Matthew 6, 19-33? Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye of the lamp, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. This man had a messed up eye. His eye was on two treasures. One, his assets that he already had and holding on to them. And secondly, on eternal life and the promises of blessing and following Christ. He had a double eye, so he made the wrong choice. We have to have a single eye. I want to obey God. I want His righteousness. And I will lose temporarily if I must. But I will not do wrong. I'll follow Jesus. No matter what. No matter what it costs me. No man can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other. Or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Do not worry then, it says in verse 31, what, we will, what you will eat, what you will drink, or what you will wear for clothing. For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows you need all these things. But what's it say? Seek you first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness. And all these things, your, your material needs, will be added to you according to God's purposes. This man chose poorly. The stated reason is because he was one who owned much property. Jesus was inviting the rich young ruler to the very thing he wanted, greater blessing and eternal life, but it wouldn't come without a cost. He'd have to embrace temporary poverty for the promise of eternal riches. Proverbs 11:28: He who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like the green leaf. Having riches isn't bad. Trusting in riches is damning. See the difference? Proverbs 11.4 Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. So we've seen two grossly misused texts in Matthew 19. And the right understanding is similar and related. Just like God has chosen some people to be celibate for the sake of the kingdom of heaven and some to be married and have quivers full of children for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, He's chosen some people to be joyfully content with minimal provisions of food and clothing for the sake of the kingdom of heaven and some to be joyful and generous givers from their abundance for the sake of the kingdom. The way that the text is often used, it falls, it falls into this Gnostic error, namely possessions are bad, and denies material blessing as a sign of God's covenantal blessing on nations and peoples. God's nature didn't change. And we've seen such prosperity on Christian nations since the building and spreading of Christendom began in earnest in 1970. I mean, not 1970, it didn't start in 1970. <laughs> Secondly, the text is often used as an evangelism text, supposedly about our inability to keep the law and our need to trust in Christ for salvation. Um, those things are true, but that's not what this text is about. That, that's true. You can't keep the law well enough to get eternal life. But that's not what this text is about. This text is about the radical nature of Christian repentance. This text calls upon disciples to forsake all and follow Christ regardless of the cost. It calls us not to believe the false promises of lesser gods like tradition and assets. Upon following Christ, the significance of His death and resurrection would have been clear to the rich young ruler. 
Just like it was to the other disciples. But is any of that in the text? Is there any belief on Jesus because he kept the law for you and died sacrificially for your sins? Is that in this text? No. What's in this text? You've got assets. Those assets won't profit you at all. If you want a more blessed life, leave the synagogue. Leave your assets behind. Come, follow me in the church, and there will be greater blessing in heaven and in this present age by following me as I live out the law in the church instead of as the synagogue teaches it in synagogues, the synagogues of Satan, that twist the law and lead to perverted righteousness. That's what the text is about. As a rule, a righteous life will lead to material blessing in this age. That's still true. Such is the nature of covenantal blessings and cursings. And were it not for sin, such would be every Christian's lot. However, because of opposition from the enemy, we'll endure distress and persecutions, sometimes making it wise to forego the creational intention of God, which involves marriage and children, so to be, make ourselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. In the same way, because of opposition and persecution, sometimes the path of faithfulness will lead to individual seasons of material and temporal loss. But we can't be shaken by that reality. We're a people who think multi-generationally. We suffer loss now for the sake of promised gain in the future. We believe the immaterial promises of Christ more than we believe the tangible concrete promises of already attained assets. If faithfulness causes us to lose riches, then so be it. Amen. I'm going to do the right thing. If everybody hates me for it and it costs me everything I own, I'm going to follow Jesus. This is the call of this text. We have the promise that in this age we'll receive a hundred times more. But not necessarily as individuals, but as a collective body of Christ. Be righteous. Model it for your children. There'll be seasons of persecution and hardship where the blessings are undercut by externals and persecutions and, and curses on whole nations of people where you just happen to be during that time. I think we're right in the middle of a time like that right now. But stay the course. Model the right actions. You might suffer now, but model them and our children will rise like... Phoenixes from the ashes with a blessing that are promised in this present age and in the age to come. Model it. Live it out unashamedly, regardless of the temporary costs. The trickle-down game we're plugged into in the corrupt systems of the world must be renounced in the path of faithfulness as we build on a better foundation. Hey, guys, be mindful of who you work for. Who are you giving your assets and your time, your, your, your skills and your abilities? What companies are you pouring into that you're helping them advance? You're plugged in. Oh, I'm getting the trickle down from them. You need to think about, do I want to invest my life and my time in something as corrupt as this? Because, believe me, those companies will fall. Just like the God did. Get out. So, is that an application of this text? It's a direct application of this text. It's how we live this out. Get into things you believe in. Put your life and your energy. You have one little life to live. Put your energies behind things you believe in. And God's blessing will be on, on that whole institution and you'll receive and you'll pour into something that matters. Such is that to which the rich young ruler was called. And such is that that the rich young ruler forfeited. May we, may we all grab a hold of this greater blessing. To whom shall we look for a model? I love that Jesus doesn't tell us to do things that He didn't do. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though He was rich, yet for our sakes He became poor 
so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. Jesus left the glories of heaven, came down, born of a virgin, living a middle-class life as a mere little carpenter and a disrespected rabbi, hated by his own people, without honor in his own country. And he chose in the path of faithfulness to lay down his life to do what? To buy our forgiveness for our sins and to chart a better way to give us the law rightly, to show us what it looks like incarnate in a man, that we might follow him and receive all the blessings of the kingdom. Follow this man. He is your partner. He is your model for the fruitful, eternal, prosperous shalom of God on your life forever and ever. Kind of gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this text. God, I pray that we would uh, we would treasure these things in our hearts. Lord, that our treasure would truly be uh, the kingdom of God and His righteousness. That we would believe the promises of God more than we believe the faulty promises of mere men and of wealth. God, help us. Help us to have the courage to do what this rich young ruler didn't have the courage to. To step out into uncharted waters when we feel convicted about things. And to trust that in the path of faithfulness, if I have to leave things behind that I've been blessed by, that there's greater blessing in the future in these other paths, that we'll have the courage to do that. And that we'll receive the reward in this age and in the age to come. It's in the name of Christ Jesus we pray that you'll give us this courage and this blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.